0: Hey, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I interview Andrew Warner of Mixergy. And this is maybe the third time that I've interviewed Andrew. I um, interviewed him for the Founder Origin Story series, which I th- think was, let's see, episode 127. And then I got to be a guest on Mixergy, which also, funnily enough, ended up with me interviewing Andrew again. So The conversation that we have in this episode in in some ways is like a through line from those other conversations. Every time we talk about meaning, we talk about money, we talk about why money is important or not. We talk about the things that Andrew is doing to grow and improve as a businessman, as a human. And inevitably at some point during the interview, Andrew tries to take over. And uh, this time I called him on it. So you can see how that turned out. This time we also ventured into some new territory. We have a conversation about grief, Andrew's recent accomplishment of running a marathon on every continent, including Antarctica. And then there's a slight digression into pole dancing. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Andrew's fascinating to talk with and certainly is someone who has done a deep dive into the inner workings of entrepreneurs. His show Mixergy has been leading the conversation about entrepreneurial stories for years. I think Andrew's fascinating to talk with, and I am so pleased to share this conversation with you. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host. I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs. And I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So Andrew Warner, thank you for joining me on Zen Founder again.
1: Are we officially in? You're not going to edit anything that we say from here on? We are
0: in. We're going. I can edit if you want, if you f*** it up and you like you feel bad and you want to make it better.
1: I noticed that there was a problem that we had. You must have, you must have done an interview with me for my podcast where I said that I want to have more sex with my wife. And so s- someone called me up and said, you know, Andrew, I'm dealing with the same issue. How did you... Ha-? I said, actually, it's, it wasn't an issue. What I was trying to say to Sherry was... I want more of everything. I want more money. But if somebody tells me, if somebody hears that, they'll say, come on, Andrew, why can't you be satisfied with where you are? But they would never say that if I told them that I wanted to read more, have more time with my wife or anything like that. There's something about money that if you say you want more of, people would try to say, calm down, don't try to get too much. So I, I know that whatever we say here, somebody will not understand, not because they're stupid, just because they're seeing themselves in it. And I want to be aware of that, that we could be sending the wrong message to people.
0: How are you going to sleep at night with that possibility?
1: I have really had to deal with it that I could say the wrong thing or have it come out wrong and someone's going to misinterpret it or have hurt feelings. And I've really wrestled with that a lot. Like where I'd say something and I go to sleep, go, no, that's, I said it, but that's not really what I meant to say. And and I had a hard time falling asleep, beat myself up over it. And then I finally realized that the only way that I can do anything in, in life is if I accept that I'm also going to screw up a bunch and that people are going to see me in the wrong light or misunderstand something that I've said. And the only way to live is and to do meaningful work is to have people take the wrong meaning from my work sometimes and just be okay with that. And
0: Well, that's the risk of it, right? Not everyone's gonna like you. Not everyone's gonna understand you. And there will be times when you have to apologize or explain or just be content with the fact that you weren't perfectly understood in the way that you want it to be.
1: And that was the hardest part. Apologizing is okay, most people won't come back to you and say that there's a problem. So I'll give you an example. I happen to talk about James Altucher. I got emails from people who said, I'm never going to take that guy seriously again. I'm not going to pay attention to him anymore. All because he had these ads where he was the Bitcoin millionaire who was going to teach you how to trade Bitcoin. They're not going to him and saying, I'm not going to invest in you and giving him an opportunity to explain himself or anything. They just hate him. And he has to accept that that's the way the world works. If he's going to take a chance and run an ad about something new, people might hate him. And I know it's easy to to talk about, and when I say this, people are nodding, going, oh, it's obvious. It's a lot harder in practice, and in reality, I think sometimes you have to just come to terms with that on your own.
0: Okay, so have you seen the new Taylor Swift documentary? No. Come on, man. I mean, I know it doesn't sound like it, and I'm not necessarily a big Taylor fan, not to offend all the Taylor fans out there, but it's actually a really interesting commentary on what you're saying. Like, for people who decide to do things in public, for people who start a podcast, an interview show, they're artists, they're musicians, and a big part of their motivation is putting their work out there for people to see – how do you cope with what it feels like when people decide that they hate you or they hate your work over some small, simple thing that you maybe could or couldn't control?
1: I could deal with hate. I think the hardest part is being misunderstood. I wanna be hated for who I am. I'm happy when someone goes, but Andrew, how could you want so much more? You're so..." I like it. When they misunderstand me is where it's, where it's painful. And that even happens in relationships. If my wife misunderstands what I'm saying, I get really frustrated.
0: You don't get to control the inner workings of someone else's mind.
1: I know. But then it's almost like they are defining me and I I just have to be okay with it. I have to accept it. And that's I'm saying that's the hardest, that's the harder part.
0: I think all of us want to be known and accepted and acknowledged. I'm kind of curious. So when I I put out on Twitter that I was gonna interview you today, and I said, What questions should I ask Andrew? And of course a couple of people weighed in and people said, ask him about his revenue. And it, it kind of made me laugh because it, it felt like, it felt like why don't you go challenge the challenger? Why don't you throw something at Andrew that he throws at other people all the time? It struck me of like, I, I really think Andrew would say no if he didn't want to answer that question. And I think that's okay. But sometimes people struggle to say no. And they feel bad, like they've been asked a question that they didn't want to answer.
1: Yeah, I get that a lot. But Let me answer the first question that everyone is coming to you with. I actually don't know my revenue for last year. It's somewhere between one and 2 million. I don't exactly know where. Here's what I do know. This is just so you know that I'm not wiggling out of the answer. I'm going to give you the harder uh, answer to the tough question, which is, I lost money last year. That's a painful thing for me to, to deal with. And I think the reason that I don't have clarity on what the top line number was is because I feel such pain that I lost money after working so hard. And as somebody who came on here telling you or you you were on my podcast and we talked about how much i want more of everything including money that's especially painful for me and so i don't know what the top line number is i do know that i lost money i am feeling incredibly i don't know what the word is hurt i feel a little kicked in the stomach i feel like i'm evaluating myself who am i how can i do this that's that's been really tough
0: didn't you spend most of last year traveling around the world running marathons
1: I did but you know what on every single continent I did interviews I scheduled them I worked hard to go there I was still working I was working on planes I was working by doing interviews I was working by scheduling interviews I was working everywhere I finished my marathon on Antarctica I was exhausted it took me it took me like again, I, I don't know the numbers for this. Something like nine hours. The reason I don't know the numbers because I think Strava said it took me seven hours. The people who are on camp said when you left it was this time, nine hours later you came back. So I don't know the exact hour. I just know that I was out of my mind exhausted. But I said, I have to do a marathon on I have to do a marathon on Antarctica and I need to interview an entrepreneur on Antarctica. And I sat down in my exhausted state with the equipment not exactly working because cold temperature affects batteries differently. And I and I did my interview and at the end of that hard work to say to say you worked hard and still lost money that's a painful thing
0: why do you think people can't say no to you or don't often say no to you when you ask them questions that they might not be comfortable with
1: i think people have different reasons for doing it this is a big issue for me on a regular basis i talk to people who i interviewed strong accomplished entrepreneurs who come back to me and say i said before the interview that i wouldn't tell you this you told me you'd still ask me and that it's fine to say no to that. You don't want to answer the question. I answered it anyway. Could you edit it? Could you remove it? And I wonder a lot of times about why they still answer the question. I think sometimes they do it because if you're being interviewed, you feel like you have to show that you've earned the right to be interviewed and you have to, there's a sense of insecurity that even the most successful people feel in some way unworthy, in this case, unworthy of being on a podcast because who are they in their minds and by answering the revenue number or the sales number or the acquisition number, whatever, they get to say, aha, I am worthy. This is a clear, definitive number that says that I am. Other times, they're just kind of lost in conversation and they enjoy the conversation. They see the meaning that I'm trying to draw out of the conversation. They want to go along with it and they want to like, support that. I think they see in me somebody who's genuinely trying to figure things out. I think a lot of podcasters are coming at their podcasts. A lot of people online are coming at the their online persona as being the know-it-all that you need to follow. They'll have these witty sentences that like sum up how brilliant they are. They can't just go for a workout without giving you a message about the meaning of your life from it. And from the beginning with Mixergy, I said, I failed at this one business and I never want to fail again. And I'm going to interview entrepreneurs to learn how I could avoid it. And I came at it from a place of vulnerability. And I do think that that comes through in my questioning, that comes through in my conversation style and they want to support it. And at times they forget that they have to be guarded people
0: they forget to put their guard up
1: right right like they forget that they that the rest of the world doesn't see them the way that i see them and
0: why do you ask the revenue question or or whatever iteration of that question that people might assume is the the litmus test for whether or not they're worthy of being interesting or worthy of being on the podcast
1: i ask entrepreneurs for some metric because i think it gives people a sense of of how big the company that they're about to hear is. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about how you built a business that is not even earning a salary for you or one that's like, that's a bigger business than that? But what are we talking about here? Let me see the size of the bread box before we talk about how to make the bread box, right? So
0: is it kind of a way of assessing how valid someone's perspective is? If the number's bigger, does that mean their opinion is more, more trite and true? It's more valuable?
1: No, it's true for their stage.
0: So it's a staging question, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think when an entrepreneur says that, as the woman who I talked to earlier today said, that she's leading her team using Zaps and Airtable, that everything is systemized using Zaps and Airtable. It's impressive, but you need to know that her business is at 1.6 million in revenue. You need to know that she's managing a people of 20 a, t- a team of 20 virtual assistants to understand this works at that stage. Now, if the founder of Help Scout, whose software we happen to talk about, who's dealing with a much bigger company, is doing that, that says something completely different. And we have to understand that if the founder of Help Scout is listening, that it's probably not, he's not going to be able to run his company using Zaps and Airtable. He needs a bigger structure, and we need to know that.
0: So it's contextualizing.
1: I think that's true, yes.
0: Okay, that makes sense to me.
1: But I'll I'll give you a I'll give you a little inside secret that I don't think is a secret, but people for some reason don't hear it when I say it. So they need to hear it. I ask my guests beforehand. Number one, I ask them if they're comfortable talking about it. I let them know before that even though they told me, they told our producer what their revenue is, they don't have to tell us. I have myself recorded saying this to them. So I'm not looking to get a guest, an entrepreneur to come on just so I could trick them into revealing something that they didn't want to reveal before. They know. I teach them to say no to me. I show them and I give them different phrases they could use. And I've got it recorded so that if, I don't know what point in my life someone is going to catch me and go, Andrew, how dare you trap all these people? I go, aha, don't accuse me. I got all this video evidence of myself showing every guest. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I see you stacking the court case. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I've got evidence. I've got evidence. I
1: do that in my head sometimes. Like in case I go to court (laughs) on this, I have it.
0: Hey, so um, tell me about running. I know you've been a runner for a long time. What possessed you to uh, run all these marathons in all these different places? Seven continents.
1: I got into running because I was at a point where I was making millions of dollars. And then suddenly I wasn't. And I go, how does that happen? And my whole sense of identity suddenly was rocked by that. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what to do, who I was. And I felt, again, like a failure. This was years ago. And a friend of mine said, hey, Andrew, I know that you don't like going to the gym, but you've always wanted to go to the gym. There's a private gym. And the reason that I didn't want to go to the gym was I was afraid of somebody like seeing my hairy legs, honestly, that they would see my hairy legs. They'd see how I looked and I'd be very embarrassed this was a private gym. In the heart of Manhattan, somebody had this space where you could just go in and shower and change on your own. That means no one would see my underwear, no one see my hairy legs. And I had like a coach, you had to work with a trainer at this place. And there was nobody there. It was, it was fantastic. And the guy had me go on a treadmill. And at first I hated it, but he kept pushing me to go further on the treadmill before we did the thing that I wanted, which is lifting weights. And I said, you know, it's kind of tough. I don't think I'd ever do it again. And then a friend of mine got into doing the Avon AIDS walk. And so while I was with her, I would get on a treadmill and do this thing that sucked, but maybe I could do a little bit better. And I started feeling good about myself doing it. And then I started running outside at night and I felt pretty good. And then I started running around Central Park. And I remember saying to myself, if I could get to that point, up in central park before this person who's standing next to me on roller skates then i am going to be able to beat this problem that i have whatever the problem was like how do i how do i deal with a creditor how do i deal with a customer and i would do it i go great i feel terrific and that felt a little bit better and then i'd go running in the morning because my cfo would push me go go do something else don't just be here all the time go running and i'd run in the morning and i'd get 3 miles and i felt really confident and he noticed it that i'd feel like i could tackle anything at work when i when i did a run because i felt i felt like a winner again and i did that enough that i was able to do long distance runs of 10 miles, 12 miles, 13.1 which is half a marathon. i felt great and i was able to undo whatever problem we had at work. i suddenly went from you know losing money to breaking even and eventually being able to sell and all because not all, but largely I was able to do it because my, my, my mindset got back. Well, a friend of mine a few years later said, we are all going to run. We're all going to list our goals for 10 years from now. This is my friend, John Bishkey. I think he runs Entelo now. And this was one of those things like, I don't want to run this stupid exercise, but okay, John, if you read Tony Robbins, this or that, and that's what you're supposed to do, I'll do it. And I wrote a list of things I wanted to accomplish in 10 years. And I happened to put it in Evernote. And then when I searched for something else in Evernote last, or about a year and a half ago, I discovered this goal of running a marathon on every continent. And I was going to do it within 10 years. And I said, Andrew, you are a failure. Maybe that's too dramatic. You let yourself down. I speak kind of strongly to myself, but I said, you kind of let yourself down. This was a thing that you could have done by yourself. It's not about the economy. It's not about this. It's not about that. Why don't, why didn't you do it? And I, said, all right, I'm going to do this, run a marathon on every continent, and then I'll start crossing off everything else on this list. Then my friend, Brad Weimert, Weimer, he said, Andrew, you should do this all faster. You should do this all in one day. You should do this in a month. And I said, that's a little much. He goes, why don't you do it faster? I said, you know, you're right. I did it. I'm going to do it in a year. And the challenge of getting to do seven marathons, of even getting to all seven continents in a year was as motivating as anything else that I had to convince people to let me get to Antarctica when they kept saying, no, we could do it, but you can't do it this year. There are international treaties. There are rules about what you can do. There's also weather conditions. And I said, please, is there a way? There's a way. There's got to be something. And that like fired me up again. And so I'm glad that I did it. And that's the reason that I did it. And now I I feel great for having done it.
0: Do you feel great for having done it? Is there any part of you that's like, okay, what's next?
1: There is. Yeah, I, I... was so bummed when I got to Antarctica, the last of my seven continents, it was so hard to even get on there that I was fortunate to even be there. Hard to get on there within a year. And by the way, to actually be deep in Antarctica, not like on the edge or whatever, on a little island. People at camp said, once you do this, what are you gonna do next? And I thought, come on guys, I didn't even do this. Why are you pushing me? What's wrong with them? And then I looked, after I got back from Antarctica, I looked at my footage of myself crossing the finish line on my action camera. And I saw myself as soon as I was done saying, what's next? I have been feeling a little bit down for not having the next thing. Like, that was such an exciting feeling that I do wish I had something after that.
0: Well, I'm sure you've talked to so many entrepreneurs who've had a big exit or had some major success. And there's this like celebratory moment, hooray, I did it. And then often there's almost this like, kind of like a postpartum depression, this sense in which like, okay, I've been focused on this for all this time. Now what?
1: I've never talked to them about the now what the truth is that they've always felt like holy crap I can't believe it's done this sense of at any minute this whole thing could fall apart and you never leave that you never lose that the sense that this is just a crazy great ride or a crazy horrible ride but I never they never feel a sense of of certainty about their place I shouldn't say never but usually they don't and so when there's a sale when it's finally through they remember that moment when they could feel like they're on solid ground again.
0: Was there a moment in all those runs when you really wanted to quit?
1: No, not once. I, the biggest thing, for, not once. There was a moment where I got injured and I remember I knew I found the right doctor when he said, what do you want? But he said it like by interrupting me, was so brusque. I said, I, what do you mean? He goes, I have some people in here, they say, if you can just get me to, to run and cross my finish line and then my leg is so broken I can never walk again, I'm okay with that. Is, like, what do you want to do? I said, oh. You accept that that's an option for me? That's exactly what I want. Get me to that point. I don't care if my leg is broken. I'm going to run every single single continent. And so, no, I never wanted to quit. My big worry that literally woke me up nights, and again, I'd have my GoPro with me when we were in Chile waiting for the weather in Antarctica to be safe for the airplane. We had the Soviet plane that was taking me to Antarctica. As I was laying there in bed, I would wake up in the middle of the night and grab my GoPro here. Here it is. It's actually the the Osmo action that I like better than the GoPro.
0: Do you just carry this with you at all times?
1: Yeah, I do because I kind of got into shooting on it. And I would talk into it in the middle of the night just to remember what I'm feeling so that I'd never walk away thinking, oh, this was so easy. I never had a worry in my life. And I have video of myself waking up in the middle of the night thinking, what if I can't get to Antarctica? What if there's a problem that keeps me from getting there? What if I, I fail because of something that's outside my control? When I never felt bad for letting myself down, I knew that I was giving it everything. I felt like other people would see me as a failure for not being able to do this. That was, that was the big concern and I had to deal with that.
0: But you never didn't want to do it. You never had the thought of like, this was a terrible idea, I went out of this. No. That's cool.
1: Yeah, no. I do love I do love this camera.
0: <laughs> I love that it's it's just by your
1: side. It's at all such times. A, yeah, I know it's such a little hobby that at first I wasn't sure how to shoot myself as I traveled, then I learned how to shoot myself and then I
0: Now you can't stop.
1: Yeah, it became this little passion project. How do I shoot myself? How do I edit it? Make it interesting.
0: So, uh, speaking of passion projects and things always by your side, Valentine's Day is coming up. And you and your lovely wife, Olivia, isn't isn't Valentine's Day the day that you had your first date? Wow,
1: well, great memory. Yes, it is.
0: Okay. So you're coming up on how many years since your very first date?
1: 14 years now.
0: Do you have something big planned?
1: No. I really like the way that Olivia, without intending to, created our, our Valentine's Day. Usually it's on the man to create a Valentine experience for the woman. Somehow... Olivia just assumed that's not going to be the case for us. And she made it into, and it made it into, it almost feels like there's a plan there. It was just, she decided one year she was going to do something for me. And then the next year I did something for her and then it, it alternated. This year, I think she, she said, it, you know, it's my year, but I just can't do it. Can, can you do it? And I said, sure. And I've got to read on what we need for this year. And, and it's going to be a much more basic night. Kind of r- relaxed. No, but less like, um, there's no whisk out of country or out of the city or anything like that. Yeah. But there's no relax. I was thinking about that. What do I want to do? What does she want to do? And she is letting me decide what I want to do. So we're going to go to a burlesque show, which to be honest, is a little bit calm, but at least it's high energy for me. It's high enough energy for me, but it's not what it seems to be. There's nobody getting naked from what I understand.
0: Have you been to a burlesque show before?
1: Yeah, there was a period when in LA, these burlesque shows were really cool and we'd all go there and it was like the most, like, I don't know. It wasn't as shocking as I think people thought it would be.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. So I-
1: You've been to it? What'd you think? Well,
0: I have a a hobby that is like aerial silks, which is sort of circusy, but a lot of my crew will cross train and pull. It's really, really great exercise. It's really great training and it helps you sort of manage your body in space. So anyway, this is a total tangent from whatever we're supposed to be talking about, but I end up with all these pole dancer friends who all go and celebrate their celebrate their shows sometimes. So,
1: By what? By pole dancing?
0: What do you mean by what? Well,
1: what are what you saying? They're celebrating their shows doing what? Oh,
0: like I'll go watch their shows.
1: Oh, got it. Okay. And
0: cheerily really loud and yeah, okay. you know, be a good friend. Support and people. is it is it sexually
1: exciting to see that?
0: For me personally? Yeah. <laughs> I love this question. I love how you just flipped the interview. <laughs> well done, master. Very well done. I would not say that it's sexually exciting. I think it's just like artfully exciting.
1: Yeah, i got a problem with that, that we're like taking a lot of the sexuality out of stuff and it becomes an intellectual exercise instead of this thing that's such a, a major force in our lives potentially.
0: Well, it's supposed to be sensual, right? It's supposed to be sexual. But I'll say as, a, as an artist and as a dancer myself, I have sort of a deep technical appreciation for it. So I'm not diminishing my own sensuality, but I am answering you, honestly.
1: I've got to say, I'm wondering about this interview. So I don't want to take control of the interview, but I feel like...
0: Of course you want to take control of the interview.
1: I might. I feel like you wanted to ask me the the question about my revenue... And so you did a good thing by bringing the audience in and saying the audience, well, they, they, on Twitter, they asked me.
0: Actually, I didn't want to ask you. I don't care you didn't. about your revenue. I,
1: I thought maybe you were a little bit taking the easy way out that you wanted to, but you didn't want to be too confrontational. And so you held back. Oh no. Yeah, I don't care, man. I'm wondering what you want to get out of this interview. Like, What's the thing that is, that's pulling you to do this interview other than I need to do another interview for my podcast and maybe something will happen with Andrew?
0: Yeah, Andrew, because Andrew's remotely interesting. Honestly, so here's the thing that I most wanted to talk with you about. I know you and your wife experienced really significant loss about a couple of years ago, about two years ago. You lost a pregnancy 20 weeks early, really significant loss, your third, your third child. And then the next, like in my choppy timeline of social media, the next big thing I hear about what you're doing in your personal life besides Mixergy is, is the running. And so I was just really, I'm curious about your experience of grief and whether the running is a way to cope with that loss, whether they're connected at all.
1: It's kind of connected. The connection is that I didn't think I'd be able to go to another continent until our kids were old enough. And now I was about to have another baby that would mean I should be back home. And and then when there was this opportunity, I said, okay, not the opportunity, uh, this was long after the news of the, the lost pregnancy. I said, well, I could do it now. Who knows? Maybe we'll get pregnant again. Maybe we'll have another child. I should do it now while while I can. That's the connection there. But it wasn't a coping mechanism. Truthfully, um, I don't feel like I needed a coping mechanism for it. I, I'm laughing because I know that sounds cruel, but I want to be open with with my feelings. It was really painful at the time. It was painful because... It wasn't expected at all. We just went for a routine doctor appointment and then suddenly, and Olivia was just going to go on her own. And I said, you know, Olivia, I'm riding my bike. I'll just come with you. And I I surprised her and I got over there and then they gave us the news and it was like this shock all at once. At a, this was not what we came in for. This is-
0: Right, this is not the plan for this day.
1: Yeah. And then we dealt with it together. Oh, man, there's so much that's just too personal for me to, to bring up here only because I don't, I don't want to violate Olivia's uh, confidence. Sure.
0: I think the thing the thing that struck me about what, the way that you did show up around it on social media was basically to say, this happened. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not even going to read your comments, which, you know, as someone who understands grief, I was like, good, good boundaries, sir. Like good way of saying, hey, this happened, but I don't really need a lot of dialogue from John Q public. But as somebody who sort of talks for a living, someone who's deeply curious about the deeper parts of people's lives, yeah, I'm curious about your decision to just say, I don't want to talk about this.
1: I got no benefit out of hearing people's stories at the time or hearing their condolence or their support or anything like that. What I would have wanted was if if I told someone I was dealing with this have them back off man like they they would still if they got I remember this one guy got me on the phone he had an agenda and I said I told you I'm about to go we decided to do a burial I'm about to go to the cemetery I took this call because I care about you and I didn't want you to just to be hanging we scheduled this call I'm, I'm here but I told you that I can't do this thing that you suggested and instead of understanding where I'm going and accepting that I said no you're still just ploughing through with your agenda can you just take what I said in for a minute? And I think that until then he didn't. And I had to be really clear. I'm telling you where I'm going. And I'm clearly telling you no to what you're asking me to do. He wanted me to speak at his conference. And I said, I care about you. I can't go to this conference now. I, I can't go even without this issue. But now I got this issue too, that I'm literally cycling home so we can go do this together.
0: Do you feel like entrepreneurs are, like, are sensitive enough to those kinds of things? To grief in whatever form it takes.
1: I, I don't know. I, I wonder about that. I wonder if what they're doing is just playing up this role of I'm supposed to never take no for an answer, and I'm the make things happen person. It would be so amazing if even in this tough situation I could do it. Or maybe they just don't even take in what I'm, what we're saying sometimes, what we're going through.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you come across as someone who is hard driving. You push yourself really hard. You work a lot, you know, you have deep motivations and ambitions and you're going after something in your life. And here's this thing that happens that you can't control, like nothing that you could have done differently. And it derails you at least for a little while. And what was the process of coming back from that like for you? I know it's probably different for other members of your family.
1: I don't feel I was derailed by it. What I what I kept going through was this alternate life that was about to happen and I, I couldn't stop playing in my mind how life could have gone in a different direction. Quite literally in my mind's eye I saw a fork in the road of a, a like a, a real road with two different directions and the one I was supposed to go down and then suddenly there was another road that came off to the left side of it that I'm now going in that direction, car- getting carried through life in that direction. And I couldn't stop looking over to the right and seeing the other road and going, wait, that's the road I was supposed to go on. And did I appreciate it enough? And why can't it be that? And isn't it going to be great if it was that?
0: Yeah. What was this like for you to parent your other children through? They're they're little, so may not have been deeply aware of what was happening, but.
1: I don't think that they were old enough to understand and to and to ask. We did talk about it, but. I just don't feel like they were old enough to understand. Yeah, I shouldn't say to understand to to be more inquisitive,
0: or to give language to it, maybe.
1: Yeah, and to I, I find the kids kind of accept a lot of what's happening. This is just the way it is up to up to a certain age, and so this was okay. I'm watching the show unfold. I'm not gonna ask the director why they chose that shot. I'm just gonna watch the show, and so for a long time, kids are watching the show of life unfold until they. Realize they can tell the director they want in a different direction.
0: Right. Says my (laughs) 13-year-old.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Why do you care about grief? Like why did why did you want to ask about that? What's your what's your curiosity?
0: There's a couple of things. I'm working on a book about grief, is probably the the most obvious connection. The other thing is I think there's actually a lot of grief in the entrepreneurial journey that people don't talk about or give themselves space to cope with whether it's a personal loss like this one that's you know just part of life for all of us at some point in some way, or whether it's the losses that go along with like wanting something really bad, like wanting your business to be successful, wanting certain employees to stay, wanting whatever it is that you want that you put your weight behind that doesn't always work out. And I don't think we give ourselves a lot of space for oh, that didn't happen the way I wanted it to. Let me grieve it before I move on. I think there's a lot of just kind of steamrolling onto the next thing.
1: Yeah, I think that rings true for me. Not Not about the loss of the pregnancy, but about...
0: Entrepreneurship in general.
1: Yeah, I think that I'm really good about letting people be themselves, letting my kids be themselves without trying to force them into a certain thing. In general, letting Olivia be herself... But for me, there are things that I really want and work really hard towards. And then I think that there is maybe like a grief associated with not getting there and a rocked my world uh, feeling with not getting there.
0: Well, there's a grief associated with the like irritating reminder that you're not in control.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: As much as you'd like to be.
1: I think it's more for me than that. It's more than just not in control. It's You see what's possible and you think you, I see what's possible. I know what I want. I know who I, like, I want that life, not the other life. I want that life, not the other life. I couldn't help when Kobe Bryant died in the helicopter accident. I couldn't help feel that it was Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and then other people. I thought we really are living in a world where it's Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and we're the other people. And I don't want, I want to fight to to have more meaning than that in my life, to not just be the other people in someone else's story.
0: How do you do that though? By being perceived in some public sphere as more important than the other people? I mean, there were other kids on that helicopter.
1: There were? Yeah, see, we don't even know that there were other kids.
0: There, right? were, there were three other kids or I had four no other idea. kids or something. There's a so bunch of basketball kids and their parents. Yeah, I had no idea. But isn't that a way, isn't that like the fact that we're just having the wrong conversation more than- strive to be the one who gets named in the headline?
1: It's more than the headline. It's, um, there's just more access. There's more, there's more life that you get if you're not the other people in the helicopter. It's access to restaurants on a small scale. It's access to, to people and conversations. It's access to healthcare. That, it's access to so many things if you are the other people in on the helicopter.
0: hey what do you want that you don't have access to now
1: i don't i don't know i i think that i had this really interesting conversation when i was in estonia i i got to talk to adi this guy who co-created skype and i said what did you do after skype and he said i forget even what he tried but it failed and then he said to me look andrew all of us at the end of Skype, we are heroes in Estonia. We're heroes in the international stage after we created Skype. And then every one of us failed. And I said, what did you do after that? And he said, well, failure, failure. But I was about to have a daughter and I decided I can't have the stress and the distraction of a startup while I'm trying to have a daughter. So I'm going to just stop trying for a little bit. I said, what'd you do? So I got into robotics just to have a hobby. And he said, I started just building these robots and then entering them in robot competitions. And I found this old video of photos of him in these robot competitions that NASA put together. It was kind of like dorky and interesting at the same time. And then he realized that these robots could actually be used to bring food to people. And he created a company called Starship. And you can see it on college campuses where it'll bring food to two students on campus. And I don't know where it's going to go. I got to sit in it. It's really exciting for me, but I wasn't as moved by what he created as I was by how he created it. This idea of just take your foot off the gas for a little bit, see what happens and start fresh. And up until that point, whatever else was on my list of things to get done in 10 years was so weighty that I didn't even I didn't even look at the rest of the list. The only thing that popped up for me on that list that John Bishke made me write was run a marathon on all seven continents. It just stood out for some reason, and I was too afraid to look at the others because I thought I have to do them, and it's so it's such pressure to do them. And then after I did that interview with Adi, I sat down at Estonia is so fascinating because they're so modern in their technology. You can do everything online with the government, and they're so like, so Soviet. And I was sitting in this Soviet restaurant in my hotel. It just felt so terrible. And I was like, what a terrible place to look at the failure of the list that you made 10 years ago. What, what more appropriate place than to see the failure of the Soviet Union sitting right there at you and refusing to die. And I looked at the list and I said, wait, I don't care about any of these items on the list. This is stuff that I made up years ago. This is completely meaningless to me. And I was so weighed down by that. I'm okay with starting fresh. If this was like a piece of paper that I'd written it on instead of a, a, an Evernote doc, I would have just ripped it up or tossed it away in their Estonian garbage. But I was able to put it behind me. And so you ask me, what do I want? I'm comfortable with not wanting anything for a little bit. I don't think, I don't know how long I could last that way, but I'm comfortable with not wanting anything for a bit and seeing what comes up.
0: It'll be interesting to see what comes up.
1: I still can't ease off of anything. There's still this... I'm still such a consistent worker, such a consistent person that I still show up to do interviews and am passionate about them. I still do research for them. Even uh, through pain, I still, do, I, I still run. I went for uh, a run yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. So I'm someone who still shows up, but I'm not showing up with the sense of force that I had before.
0: Where do you feel that differently?
1: In my vision of the future, where I could be clear before my vision of the future. Okay. I don't have that.
0: Right now, it's more open. You're okay with the grayness of it, the unknown of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm still not the type of person who could play video games. I don't think I've played a video game. I just interviewed the the founder of yeah, League of I, Legends.
0: I'm really curious about what your version um, of letting off the gas pedal is.
1: I had somebody come in the other day into my office because I put a tweet out saying, I have this good equipment for doing a podcast. If anyone wants to use it, come on in here and use it. The day before that, I think I had seven to 10 calls with random entrepreneurs who just wanted to talk to me about anything. And it's not me having any agenda on the calls, but just being there and seeing what I can do. And it. And being helpful in any way that I can and just being open to what comes up. I'm not a person who could watch... I can't watch Netflix. Unless Olivia is sitting next to me, I can't watch Netflix. And even the two of us, we can't watch an hour or two-hour Netflix show together. But I, I was sitting there for hours and hours just dealing with people's issues and helping them out, helping them think it through. And I remember one of the best parts of it was this one entrepreneur uh, said, I've been listening to you. I've got this company that sells tires online. I looked at it and it's amazing how much, mu- speaking of numbers, the revenue that he was making selling tires online is dramatic. He has this idea for a software company, but what he could use was a mentor. And then a little bit after that, I got a call from someone also scheduled with me where he said, Andrew, I finally can take a breath and now I want to help other people. And he was in, the, he was, he had a biology company, which I didn't think anyone in, in biology would be in my audience, but there's a, like a software component of it. He's got this artificial intelligence that helps um biologists do something that I don't quite understand. But I, I looked him up, I understood where he was, and I said, Hey, guess what? There's someone else who I just talked to that I think you might want to meet up with. And the two of them will get to talk. And if it's a good fit, they'll continue. If it's not, they won't. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna feel stressed either way.
0: Hmm. This is this is such a different version of you than the one that I spoke with a couple of years ago that was basically like. More, more, more! I want all the things. Yeah. All right. There it is. There it is. Hey, thank you for your time. Appreciate you.
1: I wonder what people are thinking of this. I'd love for people who are, you know, what I'm gonna, I say this all the time. I think it's a really bad idea to just consume stuff and then move on. I think if you've gotten something out of a conversation or you like a tweet or something, just reach out to the person, say something, a little something. I'd love to hear from people who do that, who who've gotten to hear us. I'd love to hear what they think it is or what they're going through.
0: I think that's amazing. I'd like that too.
1: All right. Thanks for doing this.
0: All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast.